The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Burning Man Project. Common side effects include moderate to severe confusion, partial enlightenment, utopianism, surrealism, situationism, and wild-eyed enthusiasm. If you have frequent thoughts of a transformative nature, you should continue listening immediately. Ask your life coach if you are spiritually healthy enough for this podcast. Welcome to the Burning Man Philosophical Center. I'm Caveat. Internet pioneer Jaron Lanier says that artificial intelligence isn't a real thing. Rather, it's a story we tell about our programs, much in the same way that we imagine that there are talking animals in children's stories. Talking animals are great, they're fun, they're creative, and maybe they're even good for a moral lesson or a thought experiment. But we don't actually want kids to believe that animals can talk like that. Lanier says the same thing is true with artificial intelligence. The more real we think it is, the worse it makes our engineering. Programs don't have agency, but they are designed by people with agendas. Worst of all, the infatuation with AI is keeping us from a better vision of technology, one in which we enhance our ability to experience the world and communicate with one another and ultimately are seduced away from self-destruction by finding better things to do rather than better things to buy. Jaron Lanier is our guest in the Burning Man Philosophical Center. I'd like to start by quoting something from Dawn of the New Everything that you wrote. Uh, Because I saw it happen, I understand AI as an old, innocent little thought experiment that turned into effective storytelling for fundraising and eventually exploded into a screwy belief system that makes its own advances less useful. (laughs) A lot of what you've you've written recently says that our whole concept of what artificial intelligence is and the way we think of it is is backwards. Could could you elaborate on that? Sure. To me, artificial intelligence is storytelling that we do about programs we write. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that we should be honest about it. So, um, there, you know, there, there's, um, there's this, if you really believe that your program is alive and has the same moral status as another person, I think you make yourself vulnerable to um, horrible ethical mistakes and also just engineering mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the ethical side, I mean, whenever you come up with some proxy that's supposed to be the deserving entity, the chances are you're screwing some real person on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, I mean, the an example that comes to my mind is... Um, in the abortion rights debate in the United States, the um, anti-abortion people will hold up the fetus as this entity, this full person who needs defense. But then what they're really asking for is the state to take control of the bodies of women, which is a remarkable thing to want, right? To actually have right. the state come into somebody's body. And so the thing is, whenever you make up... Um, a proxy entity that's supposed to be the real human who's really deserving of something, you're probably, whether you realize it or not, screwing over an actual real human somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to be careful about empathy. You have to, you know, you have to, you have to be discipl- a little disciplined in your empathy or you can turn into an asshole pretty easily. Right. And so you know, something like this happens exactly with AI. Um, a recent example, which happened um, since Dawn of the New Everything was completed, is that the government of Saudi Arabia granted citizenship to a female AI program, or AI robot, 
And that robot has been given freedom of action that's denied to actual human women in Saudi right. Arabia, speaking in public without being um, uh, accompanied by a male who, who has controlling authority. And uh, and so there's this very striking, I just every single time you see somebody talk about AI, you'll see this, there's some kind of an effect where somebody else, some real person is being screwed somehow as part of the chain. It might not be immediately obvious, but you'll always find that. Right. Um, and then the other thing is that whenever you say something's um, alive, you have to respect it. We don't ask um, dogs to not be dogs. We treat them as alive, but we treat them as dogs. And so the thing is, if you treat your program as this living thing, you in a way give it too much respect. You should treat it as a tool, and you should expect it to get better and to um, delete it if it doesn't work well. I mean, it, like as, as soon as you bring in this kind of empathy as if it was alive, you, you ruin your ability to be a good engineer. On the ethical side of things, you've talked about the way in which a better future for the Internet is one grounded in a clear notion of private property, that the data of our personhood is our property and can't be collected without compensation. And this seems to speak to the idea that if there's a third-party proxy that you're focused on, you're, you're getting screwed. Well, just to be clear, it's not so much that I'm pro-private property. I'm just saying that the overall system has to be coherent. If mm -hmm. somebody feels that they have an agenda that disposes of the idea of property, either in part or in whole, uh, in other words, um, if, uh, if the Internet is going to take away your livelihood, but you still have some way of having a place to live, if it doesn't make you homeless, that might work. Mm -hmm. But the problem we have right now is that we have more and more things made free, starting with music and news and photography and whatever. These things are just distributed for free now. Um, but at the same time, the people who used to make their living at those things don't get free rent. Mm -hmm. They still have to make rent. They don't get free medical care. They still have to find some way to earn money. And so if the society is... So as long as the society is going to charge money for the basics of life, then the information world has to pay money. Uh, you know, So it's not so much that I think private property is the only possible solution or some sacred thing. I'm just saying that we, we can't just say that it's uh, socialism for what you produce, but capitalism for what you need. Right. That, that, that combination is terribly cruel. And that's unfortunately exactly what's happened. We've seen, uh, and, and people, we've seen this incredibly intense concentration of wealth and power around whoever's closest to the biggest computers that route everyone else. And then everyone else, it's not that they're not employed, but they, they lack security. So you can get a job as an Uber driver, but you don't have security. You can work for 40 years for Uber, and you still won't necessarily be able to pay for your kid's college. You still won't necessarily be taken care of if you get sick for a month. And um, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. This seems to tie into the, your idea that the systems that we have were designed to be weightless and anonymous, and that this actually depersonalizes people. That's a, that's a structural feature of them, that the personalization is built into the way the internet is designed. Yeah, so to me, there's like a great story of tragedy in this, where um, it's not about the internet, because the internet predates these kinds of problems. It's really about the early businesses on the internet. Um, like Google is a good example. That was a pretty big early one. And it's a tragedy because what happened was there were a bunch of really sweet idealistic people, and it has to be said, a lot of them 
probably showed up at Burning Man and, and actually were really influenced by and influenced Burning Man. And really, did they wanted information to be free, as it was said. They wanted to have a volunteerist culture. They wanted to have a recombinant culture. Um, and uh, it has to be said, at Burning Man, the way the community works, you actually don't have to make rent. And so while you're at Burning Man, this right. works great. <laughs> you know, it actually right. does work, which is amazing. If the rest of the society ran on the same principle, maybe it would work elsewhere, too. But anyway, they wanted that. But then at the same time, there was this other thing, which was equally true, which is that that same culture kind of worshipped people like Steve Jobs or currently maybe people like Elon Musk. That There was this kind of romance of the um, capitalist tech hero figure who was supposed to, you know, dent the universe and be this this highly creative person who just created like this Nietzschean figure who created reality out of his will or whatever. And the role is male is his will. And um, uh, the problem is if you combine those two, there's not a lot of ways to get this open, free, volunteerist culture with these capitalist heroes at the same time. There's only one way to do it, which is what Google did, which was the advertising model. But then what happens is... If you just let Moore's Law happen, you let the tech get better, the algorithms get better, the computers get bigger and bigger, the devices get more and more pervasive, what started out as advertising turns into universal continuous behavior modification for rent. You know, it's this horrible, this horrible thing comes out of it, even though it started with good intentions. And then that, in turn, undermines humans because everybody becomes addicted to these manipulative systems that undo personhood. And... And then we end up with skewed elections and a society made of assholes and all the things that we have to deal with now. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you, you pointed out in, in terms of our, the technology we rush towards that people want to buy HAL, the, uh, the, the homicidal system on uh, 2001, a space yeah. odyssey. I mean, why, why is that? I don't know. I mean, I thought I thought it was really funny that these little. I mean, these there's this current idea of the smart speaker, which Amazon's been probably doing the most to promote, and if they're like these little round things that sit there. They they are kind of like a howl, right? They're similar mm-hmm. to the 2001 robot that was murderous, and it's so bizarre. Like, why did they have to be little round things that look like hell? Maybe they could have looked like. I don't know, long things that you hung on the wall. Like, why Why do they look like how? And I think ultimately there is a sort of a bizarre, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just a weariness with the human condition. Maybe people are saying, I'm tired of having too much choice. I'm, ha- I'm tired of having to face the fear of mortality. I'm tired of having to deal with how other people are so difficult. And maybe I just do want to be killed by this robot, this killer robot. Maybe I just want to, it's like this, maybe I just surrender to it. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just find it incredible that of all the designs we could have had for these speakers, they look like a hell. Right. They're- yeah, there's there does sometimes seem to be a kind of a, a death wish um, lurking in our, our technological progress. I, I don't know how to how seriously to take that, but one of the the antidotes you propose, um, one of many, uh, is that to as you say, work on sensors, feel the luscious texture of actual real work, work with real people. Um, mm-hmm. One of the concepts that's that's emerged out of these these conversations I'm having, uh, it started with uh, Sherry Turkle, was that we need to practice being human. And that this this is actually an important thing to do in in the era we're in now, and that we we need to do it well as a response to our technology. Does that does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, I think I think we have um, very rapidly lost something. Um, 
we've lost something precious about the richness of, of life and of knowing other people. Um, and it's a great shame. How, how would you recommend we practice being human? What would, what would be on your, your checklist of things to do to practice being human? <laughs> well, th- my next book, which I just finished, is called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. So, <laughs> I guess, uh, yeah. But just just some more, more engagement with the, the physical world as opposed to the digital? Well, you know, of course... Um, I don't think there's anything poisonous about the digital world per se. I think the problem with the digital world is mostly just that there's this perverse uh, business plan called the advertising business plan, but it's really a behavior modification business plan that has made the digital world poisonous. I don't think there's anything intrinsically poisonous about the digital world. I think it could be better. I hope it will be. I'm heartbroken by how it's turned out, and as I say, it's especially heartbroken because a lot of how it turned out badly was the result of um, how very good intentions from sweet people played out. So it's even more tragic than it might otherwise have been. Yeah, you you suggested actually that that a virtual reality approach to the information age is healthier for people than the kind of AI approach that uh, that we're we're now following. Well, you know, I'm afraid the moment I say that, somebody will come out with some horrible way of doing virtual reality. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, look, it's all in the details, and uh, people people are capable of unbounded perversion. We all know that. But what, what, what I mean by that is just that AI proposes um, to redefine personhood as something beyond and even outside of people, whereas virtual reality doubles down on understanding what a person is, because working with VR is all about getting deeper and deeper into the nature of the human senses and the human experience and the human body and what's possible and what what are hidden hidden, um, experiences that we didn't realize we could have with our bodies and with uh, sharing bodies in a virtual world and all these crazy things you can do in virtual reality. And um, so um, I, uh, I do think it's a, it's a more beautiful approach, but, you know, like I say, it's all in the details and um, I, I'm always afraid I'll get my heart broken again by something, so I'm almost afraid to even say that now. Yeah. Oh dear. I, there, there does seem to be something important about having an, an embodied experience as opposed to a disembodied experience, and that doesn't necessarily have to be a, a literal body, but that there's there's something, as you say, uh, the internet has become weightless, and that's that's become a problem. The the embodied experience gives one more grounds for for compassion and, and engagement. It, it seems like there's a design principle there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I think there are a few different levels to this. One of them is just like the style of cognition that we bring to our lives. And the the computer age has really highlighted this this particularly nerdy way of thinking where you're not in your body and everything is abstract and everything is problem solving and everything is optimization. I think it's... Um, it's a cognitive style that's the norm, the normal, the normative, the um, most common um, I- ideal of human nature in, in Silicon Valley, and it's easy to confuse it with being on the spectrum. But I think it's distinct from that because uh, I know people on the spectrum who don't have that that hyper nerdy quality, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I I think just like you have to recognize that cod- cognition is a body thing. You can you think with your body. It's you're not, you know. I, I 
This has been a lifelong argument I've been having with people. I've really been struck by how um, the the most creative people are approaching whatever they do with their whole being and not just like cutting off their brains as like these little abstract things that are supposed to function autonomously. Mm in the book, you might have noticed there's a section where when I, I met Richard Feynman when I was a kid and he taught me how to eat, like model particles and mathematical relationships with your body. Like you think, you think somatically because like a big part of your brain, the biggest part of your cortex is the one attached to your body. Like your, your brain is an embedded embodied thing in reality. It's not some abstraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, if, if that's one design principle, your, your recent work seems to suggest another one. Um, I, I, the the line that you almost ended, you are not a gadget with, and then were apparently talked out of by by the publisher, I guess. But uh, technologists technologists have a responsibility to come up with media technologies of such beauty, fascination, and depth that mankind will be seduced away from mass suicide. That's- yeah. So let me ask you: How many suicides have there been at Burning Man? I have no idea, honestly. Um, I've, I've never heard of one. I've heard of accidental deaths. I've heard of people who were idiots and killed themselves by, by being reckless. Right. I've never heard of a suicide at Burning Man. And I think the reason why is, is very simply that it provides an alternative. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to be too flippant about that. but No, no, I no. Think, um, I, I think that creativity is what preserves life. Creativity... Mm-hmm. To, to not prioritize creativity is to choose death, and and um, I I'm um, appalled by you know the, the surface quality of a lot of our current digital services is like it looks like it's coming out of a I don't know like a a, a day school for toddlers everything's like all these bright colors and these cute words and everything but ultimately. And just below the surface is this incredible regimentation where you're categorized into whatever it is that will help somebody sell you something or persuade you of something, and everything's fake. And, you know, you're, you live in this world that's completely disconnected from anything, and at a certain point, it's not creative enough to live that way. Mm-hmm. Well, and if, if not choosing technology, or not if not choosing creativity is choosing death, then to some extent there we have of the the death impulse going through our our current technological systems it is it is in some yeah. ways anti-creative yeah i guess <laughs> that would be a way to make uh, people at amazon not particularly like you i guess to publish that the reason <laughs> their little smart speakers are appealing is that they're appealing to people's death wish that seems like a message that maybe amazon's uh, pr people would not prioritize i would love to see, I, I would love to see the marketing campaign though <laughs> <laughs> I still want to see that. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> um, I, I really was, as I say, when I, when I, when I read that about the, the purpose of technologists to keep us all from, from mass suicide by seducing us with, with, with beauty and wonder, I, I really did think that's a, as, as much a statement of, of purpose for Burning Man technology as, as anything else. Um, I, and I, I've, I want to ask you about the concept of the McLuhan ramp in in connection with this because it seems like that that is a almost a manifesto of or or a direction that that we can take this. Yeah, the idea of the McLuhan ramp is to um, uh, 
to perceive an alternate uh, ramp or direction in human history. So uh, we perceive people as being on some sort of a progressive incline where in the past we had less technology and then we get more and more as time proceeds and we presume we'll have more in the future. In the past we had shorter lifespans and we presume, we presume the lifespans go up as medical technology improves. In the past, uh, we had smaller communities and now we're more integrated globally and we presume that some sort of connection at a large scale increases over time. So there are all these ways that we, we perceive uh, r progressive ramps in, in the history of our species. Um, I'm proposing another one of those that I think might be a little more um, helpful than some. Um, so. Uh, it's, uh, I'm calling it the McLuhan ramp, and uh, this <laughs> I've been talking about this for 40 years now, I guess. But the notion is that um, over time, we've invented more and more means to connect with each other, um, starting in ancient times with spoken language, and then eventually with and music, and then written language, and then stored written language with writing, and then eventually with, you know, photography and cinema and um, re audio recording and radio and television, and then the internet and all the different sub-services sub and forms of the internet, and, and virtual reality, of course. And all each of these things opens up a new sort of a channel between people. And what I like about the McLuhan ramp is that it's boundless. Um, if you have a ramp that's based purely on more and more technology, more and more capability, it seems to me that you eventually kill yourself from too much power. Like you, you just, the ramp hits a cliff and you run off the cliff and you die. Because we, we can't necessarily incorporate more and more technology for its own sake. But if you conceive of the ramp as being more and more connection, more and more mutuality, more and more storytelling, more and more chances for creativity, more and more art forms, that is something that can expand boundlessly. That is something that can go on forever. And so I think we need to be able to think in terms of a, the progressive nature of our species in, in some way that doesn't have an end, like an obvious end, like the quest for power. So the quest for the quest for communication is boundless. The quest for power is bounded. So choose the quest for communication. So for those of us who who want to help to to start building the McLuhan ramp and and moving along it, what what should we be doing? Well, first of all, delete your social media accounts for God's sake. <laughs> like seriously, you can't be sitting there staring at the screen or swiping left and right or whatever it is. You can't be doing that and then saying like, "Oh, and also I'm like really in my body and connected to the world and being creative." Like, like you have to, you have to look at yourself and 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 battle your addiction to the corporate services first, mm -hmm. and then let's talk. Right. That is that is step one. What what should what else what should we be building at that point? Um, giant pipe organs. <laughs> Music is good. Music is good. <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with internet pioneer Jaron Lanier, and this is a podcast of the Burning Man Philosophical Center. The Philosophical Center is a Larry Harvey production with casting by Stuart Mangrum. Production assistance is provided by Jay Knizzle with theme music by Ariel Cruz. I'm Caveat. Thanks for listening. And until next time, remember, belief is thought at rest.